It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. On April 12th, 1945, a great man died, and his death shook the nations. Hey, this is Eric. President Franklin Roosevelt suffered a cerebral hemorrhage at a very inopportune time in history and left a portrait that he had envisioned for world peace unfinished. Ironically, he was sitting having his portrait painted at the time of his death, and that painting too has remained unfinished after his passing. It's a sad thing when anyone dies, but especially when they leave work still undone. A premature passing is a hard thing to swallow. It's amazing, but almost on the exact same day of the year, over 1,900 years prior, another great man died, Jesus Christ. And his death, as we all well know, shook the nations too. There seems to be two ways to die, and these two men ended quite differently one from the other. Roosevelt died before he had finished his work, but the second great man, Jesus Christ, died declaring, It is finished. By the way, if you would like to listen to the previous episodes in this series on World War II, we have them organized for you at ellerslie.com forward slash daily. Please check it out. Now let's explore how we can avoid the cerebral hemorrhage in our own Christian walks and ensure that what God has started in our lives be brought unto completion. This is the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. We are at a juncture in World War II that technically we should all be excited that we've arrived at. Uh, This is, uh, I'm going to crest into April of 1945. If you notice that 1945 is moving very quickly, it's because 1945 did move very quickly and sort of the feel of 1944 is now in the rearview mirror. 1944 included D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge. It is going to be the ultimate... uh, harrowing adventures uh, that are going to lead to massive loss of life and there's going to then be a breakthrough in 1945 where we begin to move rapidly towards uh, what is to most at least Europeans or at least the British VE Day and then even eventually VJ Day so victory over Europe VE victory over Japan VJ so terms that it's interesting because uh, older Americans use them, but younger Americans have no idea what those things are. It's just fascinating how we've lost touch with these very critical enunciations of what took place in our history, and it's not that long ago. But uh, So we're closing in on what would be called VE Day, which is a victory in Europe. Uh, it's the overtaking of Germany, the destruction of the Nazi regime. And so, like I said, this should be a day of celebration, and it is, uh, but there's a lot of unique things that are happening that are going to affect world history for the next generations, uh, I mean, even to today. It's very interesting. If you study World War I, you see certain things that are happening that are going to actually lead to World War II. World War II is just a byproduct of World War I. And so when you look at that one shot that Gavriel Princip is going to shoot at the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, that one shot is going to trigger events throughout a hundred-year period. And that's not an exaggeration. It is an extraordinary thing. The Middle East crisis to communist Russia to the breaking up of Europe, to, I mean, so many different facets are going to take place that you could actually 
draw a line back to that one gunshot. And that's just a fascinating thing. And the same, so as much as you're going to see the course of evil and the ripple effects of evil, you could also go back to a day that's going to divide history, and it's known as the cross of Jesus Christ. And you're going to see one man stand in one place hanging on a tree and he is going to create a ripple effect of righteousness that is going to change the lives and the history of nations. It's just interesting to just see how these things work. And so studying history is extremely fascinating to me to see dominoes uh, that fall. This is a domino month. April of 1945, you're going to have some very, very interesting things. I mean, it's like the ultimate, if you're sort of leaning towards conspiracy theories, you really like April 1945. It is such an odd, eccentric, weird month, okay, in world history. This is called An Unfinished Portrait, and it's one of those stories that I have to admit is extremely intriguing. And the fact that the American government covered it up for so many years as a protective measure for the reputation of Franklin Roosevelt, plus for the protection just of the dignity of our country, is intriguing to people, okay? So everyone is wanting to know more. The moment you hear that, it's like, oh, now I must know. But uh, my focus isn't on the sort of the questionable dimensions of this as much as the impact dimensions and why it even happened. An unfinished portrait. April 12th of 1945 is going to be a very, very significant day in U.S. history. Not a day that most of us are familiar with at a great intimate level, but a very defining day. I'm going to call it zero hour to Stalin's accusations of the Allies. Stalin is going to levy an accusation against Great Britain and America, saying that they are in cahoots with Hitler and they have worked out a peace treaty to stand with the Germans and to turn all the weight of the Allies plus the Nazis against Soviet Russia. And, I mean, Churchill and, and, uh, and Roosevelt are like, excuse me? Here we've been fighting with you this whole time to quash Hitler, and now right at this critical moment, April 12th, 1945, you have this attack that is actually going to lead to what we know as the Cold War. Okay, this is going to have a ripple effect Somehow Stalin has become convinced that the Allies have turned on him. They've sided with Hitler, and they want to destroy the communists. And as a result, you're going to see all sorts of dynamics take place. So this is zero hour for this. April 12th of 1945, something else is going to happen that isn't on this list. Okay, But I'm just sort of letting you know, there's, there's going to be a very significant thing that happens here. This is 16 days until the death of Mussolini, one of the most intriguing, again, conspiracy theory-like studies you could ever get into. He was the ruler, the dictator, uh, fascist dictator of Italy, who sided with Hitler. Then you're going to have 18 days later, two days after Mussolini, Hitler is going to die, of course, one of the greatest conspiracy theories. He's still alive. In fact, most people would say, the Allies would say, the Soviets wanted to declare that he was still alive. They're the ones that sponsored all those conspiracy theories because they wanted to justify all of their angst towards the Allies, that it was all a part of a ruse, and the Soviets are going to amp up their, in, mm, their evil because of this. And so then you have 26 days until the end of the war in Europe. That's how close we are. And all of these things are happening right at the same time. 
So April 12th, 1945, the death of a very important man. So, and I'm going to walk through that just in a, in a brief way because it is a sizable event in the war. And it's a sizable event almost like to say in how the war is going to end and how things are going to play out afterwards. But this is going to be a shock to everyone. Everyone knew that Franklin Roosevelt's health was waning. He wasn't a strong and robust character physically. He was having difficulty with travel. But for all practical purposes, he was mentally sharp and he had a good you know, 10 years still in him. And yet some of his correspondence as of late within the past month or so has not actually been done by him. And so General Marshall was actually starting to take over. The Americans didn't reveal that, that actually he was struggling with some of his uh, health issues. We don't know to what degree because it was covered up so thoroughly that we only know a li little bits and pieces. And that's mainly through like Churchill declaring it's like this didn't come from Roosevelt. This was written by Marshall. Churchill knows Roosevelt extremely well, and just as a, a, a memorial, if, I was, if we were at Roosevelt's memorial service, if you were to look back through this series, uh, through these however many episodes uh, we've gone through now, you would hear that I've given a lot of compliments to Roosevelt. Now, I've taken a few shots at the poor guy. I mean, he deserves a few shots uh, in this, but politically, I don't necessarily ally with him, but there are certain things about the man that are impressive to me. And I, I've, I've tried to be blunt honest about that as we've gone through. It's like that decision was, was a good one. Franklin, well done. This decision, not so much. Okay? And so I don't just agree with everything just because he's American. And yet I, ha I would say I have an admiration for him. And yet I don't want to follow him. I don't want to be a leader like Franklin Roosevelt, even though there are certain aspects to his leadership that I would say, now that is a wonderful quality. His relationship with Churchill is inspiring. To see two world leaders at a time like this truly be deep friends, like intimate friends, is, is a pretty special thing and rare in world history. And so there's a lot of positives. There's, I have reason to believe that he was a Christian man. Okay, I know that, that those that tend to lean politically against Roosevelt don't like those types of statements. But I have reason to believe, mainly from Churchill's memoirs, that Churchill was deeply moved. Uh, one of the Russian ambassadors was in town, and he spent time just trying to win his soul to Christ. And I'm assuming, even though there's not a lot that I have found on Roosevelt's personal faith, that he was a man not just of a personal faith, but of a desire, he was of a bent to share his faith, which is an interesting thing to just throw in the mix. In other words, I'm not going to just throw him under the bus and say, hey, let's discard him. There's something that I admire in him, but there's a vulnerability in this man, and we're going to see it play out in its fulfillment on April 12th, 1945. So it's the death of a very, very important man. So Lucy Mercer Rutherford is not the wife of Franklin Roosevelt, but she is going to enter back in. She's an old flame of Franklin Roosevelt's. And in these tough hours of Franklin's life, he is going to justify a renewal of relationship, am I saying this appropriately, with uh, Lucy uh, Mercer. And so this is a quote from Lucy Mercer to a, 
uh, famous artist at the time. Uh, you should really paint the president. He has such a remarkable face. There is no painting of him that gives his true expression. I think you could do a wonderful portrait, and he would be such an interesting person to paint. Would you do a portrait of him if it was arranged? So she has intimate connections with the president at this time, and so the president is going to need to get away for you know a week, uh, and he's going to go down to one of his retreat spots in uh, Warm Springs, Georgia, to meet up with Lucy. Meanwhile, this artist is going to come in to paint uh, Franklin Roosevelt. The artist's name is Elizabeth Shumatoff, and her statements later, it's not at the time, was, I was trapped into something I'd neither wished for nor planned. She is going to be right smack in the middle of this situation. So the president is really not where he should be at this exact moment, sort of like David's with Bathsheba. Uh, there are those moments where the great leaders justify why it is okay to take a break and to have a diversion. And so Roosevelt is going to have a diversion. April 12th, he's down in Warm Springs, Georgia, and he is having his portrait painted. He is sitting in a chair in front of Elizabeth Shumatoff. Nearby is Lucy Mercer uh, and his <clears throat> uh, newfound old flame. And... As Elizabeth says it, she was trapped into something I had neither wished for nor planned. When the President of the United States commissions you to paint a portrait, what are you supposed to say, even though it's with uh, someone who's not his wife? How do you do this? And so it was all top secret, it was all hush-hush, but in the middle of that hush-hush, we have a problem. Franklin Roosevelt, uh, right around 1 p.m. on April 12th, 1945, declares, I have a terrific pain in the back of my head. And then seconds later, he falls over, slumps over, and never recovered consciousness. He's going to die in about two hours with a, after have, experiencing a cerebral hemorrhage. So I don't know if you can sort of fill in some of the gaps of why the government is going to cover this up. This is a shame Thing. A major leader who has taken a retreat from battle and is trying to bring a certain level of strength to his manliness for such an hour as this, and in so doing is actually going to see a miscarriage of his leadership at a time when the world is desperately needing him to finish the race. Winston Churchill, in his memoirs, simply says this, President Roosevelt died suddenly that afternoon on Thursday, April 12, 1945, at Warm Springs, Georgia. He was 63. While he was having his portrait painted, he suddenly collapsed and died a few hours later without regaining consciousness. When I received these tidings early in the morning of Friday the 13th, I felt as if I had been struck a physical blow. My relations with this shining personality had played so large a part in the long, terrible years we had worked together. Now they had come to an end, and I was overpowered by a sense of deep and irreparable loss. So it's interesting because I've looked at tons of uh, newspaper. This is the one down in Georgia where he was. But uh, it's just interesting even to look over the front of newspapers in that time to see what was happening and it's such a strong momentum of victory that is taking place, and then in the midst of it, Roosevelt dies. And I don't know, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't alive then, so I don't know what that felt like. I can just sort of imagine with such a momentous 
character, such a strong personality. I mean, he'd been a president 12 years. That's unprecedented in uh, American history, right? And so through the Great Depression, through World War II, two of the greatest challenges this nation has ever experienced, and he was the leader. And then suddenly in one day, right at such a crucial moment, he is going to die. So history.com says it very succinctly, and this is the reason I picked this out is because it says something that the other ones don't. On April 12, 1945, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt passes away after four momentous terms in office, leaving Vice President Harry S. Truman in charge of a country still fighting the Second World War and in possession of a weapon of unprecedented and terrifying power. That's, you know that Harry Truman didn't even know about the atomic bomb? He didn't even know. You know that Harry Truman didn't have a clue what was going on in the world? He wasn't briefed. Roosevelt had not kept him up to speed. His generals knew, but on the political dynamic, like what was going on with Stalin, Truman didn't know. So you have to recognize when this is happening and Stalin is levying an accusation against the Allies, and then Roosevelt dies, with him dies all of those conversations, all of those relationships. I mean, how many times did these three met together to work these things through. Now suddenly this key, and you have to recognize Hitler and Stalin don't like each other. Roosevelt is the mediator. So now, I don't know if you can just sort of picture the Cold War in a nutshell right there. But, I mean, Churchill's very gracious. He's very British, okay? So he's very proper, but he, this guy drives him crazy. And Stalin doesn't like Churchill at all either. Roosevelt is pliable. You can just sort of see how Stalin would look at him. It's like, yeah, this guy will go my way because he wants peace. He wants to make this work. Churchill's a man of principle, and he will not budge from it. And so what you have is the key peacemaker, the mediator, mediator just died without passing along how this is all supposed to work. Churchill is shocked that Truman doesn't know anything because all of his people around him, if he died, would know everything. The way that the British government was set up and the way Churchill ran his government is everyone knew, so he was replaceable. And, I mean, in the British government, that is true, too. You could just lift out your leader at any time. And so you have to be set up that way. In the the United States, it's a big deal to get a president out. That president is just there. And oftentimes when you get a new president, they're like totally at a loss of what's going on because we don't do it the same way. The untimely death. We are experiencing victory without much perspective. We're just happy to be done with the war, but we don't realize we're entering into a new war. We don't recognize. We're just happy to be done. So America is just celebrating up a storm. It's triumph without understanding. And so there's there's multiple life lessons woven into this in understanding how to maintain, even when there's a victory, a solemnity of soul to recognize, but this is not yet over. It's like that blend of two where the Americans are going to lose sight and almost just say, hey, 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 we'll deal with that some other day. Uh, As opposed to recognize this is the other day right now. We have an equal power to Hitler that is now in control of a good portion of Europe. 
We just spent six years trying to get Hitler out. Now we have Stalin in his place. It's such, the, the irony of it is just uh, astounding. The unfinished portrait. You know, I actually didn't know that you could see the unfinished portrait. I, I, I had looked for it before I thought, and then I decided I would do one more uh, search to see about Roosevelt's unfinished portrait, and it just popped up. I was like, oh, so there it is. Isn't that just an amazing thing that you can actually see the unfinished portrait? And so uh, there it is. So if you're streaming this via podcast, this is a really hard moment for you as you're like, what? But you could have come and visited at Ellerslie and sat in the audience right now. And those of you that are here right now know that they could have done that, right? So Roosevelt's last letter is dated April 12th. You know who it was to? Stalin. This is very interesting. So with a, this is what it says. With a confidence in your belief in my personal reliability, because remember, Stalin has levi, uh, levied a charge uh, of treason, of betrayal against the Allies. With a confidence in your belief in my personal reliability and in my determination to bring about together with you an unconditional surrender of the Nazis, it is astonishing that a belief seems to have reached the Soviet government that I have entered into an agreement with the enemy without first obtaining your full agreement. Finally, I would say this, it would be one of the great tragedies of history if at the very moment of the victory, now within our grasp, such distrust, such lack of faith should prejudice the entire undertaking after the colossal losses of life, material, and treasure involved. Frankly, I cannot avoid a feeling of bitter resentment toward your informers, whoever they are, for such vile misrepresentations of my actions or those of my trusted subordinates. Isn't that interesting that that would be dated April 12th, the date of his passing? You see the tensions right there. You see the extreme nature of what's going on. He's going to die that same day, and Truman doesn't know what's going on. I mean, I, I don't know if you guys can feel this. I'm trying to put us into the situation. It's really difficult because so much of this was covered. You're not going to broadcast the fact Truman knows nothing. You're not going to say that in the news, right? Hitler's going to say it. Truman knows nothing. <laughs> Why? Because he's going to be dealing with Truman. And so it's like, what? How could he not know anything? This is outrageous. And yet this is the state that America is going to suddenly find itself in. It is in control of most of Europe and is in a political position to determine the outcome of Europe. And it's going to, in a sense, say, hey, that's none of our business. And as a result, Stalin is going to say, I'll make it my business, which is why most of Eastern Europe was considered communist for how many uh, decades? Eleanor Roosevelt is going to hear the news. She, of course, is not with him, right? And she is going to come to Harry Truman, and this is the famous dialogue back and forth. Harry the president is dead. Harry Truman says, is there anything I can do for you? And Eleanor Roosevelt says, is there anything we can do for you? For you are now the one in trouble. You are the one in trouble now. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty good uh, quote there. <clears throat> is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one in trouble now. Winston Churchill as war waged by a coalition draws to its end, political aspects have a mounting importance. 
It is true that American thought is at least disinterested in matters which seem to relate to territorial acquisitions. But when wolves are about the shepherd, when wolves are about, the shepherd must guard his flock, even if he does not himself care for mutton. That is, that is an amazing quote. I don't know if it's understood, but it's true. In American thought, we don't think of acquiring nations. We're not thinking of gaining Romania for ourselves. It's not even in our head. We could. We could take it. We have troops over there. We could seize it for ourselves. We don't even think that way. We're just happy to bring peace and then get back home. And so what Churchill is saying is the wolves are about, and so even though you're not interested in the territory, you better take it to protect it. Even if mutton's not on your menu for tonight, you weren't interested in eating sheep, you need to protect that sheep territory. And so as a result, you're going to see America back off at the very moment that they should have pressed forward. And that's, of course, Winston Churchill's great concern in this situation. At this time, the points at issue did not seem to the United States Chiefs of Staff to be of capital importance. They were, of course, unnoticed by and unknown to the public, and were all soon swamped for the time being effaced by the flowing tide of victory. Nevertheless, as, we will, not now be, as will not now be disputed, they played a dominating part in the destiny of Europe, and may well have denied us all the lasting peace for which we had fought so long and hard." We can now see the deadly hiatus which existed between the fading of President Roosevelt's strength and the growth of President Truman's grip of the vast world problem. In this melancholy void, one president could not act and the other could not know. Neither the military chiefs nor the State Department received the guidance they required. The former confined themselves to their professional sphere. The latter did not comprehend the issues involved. There's a lot in that paragraph, by the way. The indispensable political direction was lacking at the moment when it was most needed. The United States stood on the scene of victory, master of world fortunes, but without a true and coherent design. Britain, though still very powerful, could not act decisively alone. I could at this stage only warn and plead. Thus, this climax of apparently measureless success was to me a most unhappy time. I'm going to read that again. Thus, this climax of apparently measureless success was to me a most unhappy time. So when everyone else is rejoicing, Churchill knows what's going on. He just lost the one guy that he could deal with, that he's been dealing with intimately on this the whole time, and no one else understands it. And so it's a most unhappy time for this guy. I mean, if, and I've walked through six years with Winston Churchill here. So to leave it with that, it's like, oh, I don't want you saying that. I want you rejoicing, Winston. I, am moved, I, I moved amid cheering crowds or sat at a table adorned with congratulations and blessing from every part of the Grand Alliance with an aching heart and a mind oppressed by forebodings. The destruction of German military power had brought with it a fundamental change in the relations between communist Russia and, and the Western democracies. They had lost their common enemy which was almost their sole bond of union. Henceforward, Russian imperialism and the communist creed saw and set no bounds to their progress and ultimate dominion, and more than two years were to pass before they were confronted again with an equal willpower. The strange month of 1945. I mean, we have a lot going on. You got the crying out of betrayal, treason of Stalin, towards the leadership. You have the sudden passing 
of Franklin Roosevelt. You have the uh, murder of, uh, of Mussolini, and you have the suicide of Hitler. All in one month. I mean, that is like one dramatic month. And just days after that, you're going to have the victory, uh, VE Day. You're going to have the actual finalization of the war. So all of this is happening all at once. There's a con that takes place, and you're going to notice that, ironically, the same con is going to be used on Mussolini, on Hitler, and on Roosevelt. All three of them are going to die in this month, but they all sort of fall for the same con. Let's see if I can explain it. The only way great men can carry such weights of global leadership is to cater to the flesh. It's a con, and it's a long con. It's been going on for a long time. There are things that those in governmental circles will actually purposely overlook because they know that that man is carrying great weights. And so they will give allowance, even give opportunity, even create ways in which they can help these men maintain their strength. Because every great man needs to be cared for in very specific ways. Okay, Now, I'm trying to be general and cloak it as best I can, but the point is, it's a con. And what it leads to is a destruction of the man and ultimately a destruction of the outcome of what his purpose was. Because it's possible that God can raise someone up, but that man can actually detour from the point of his assignment. We could actually show many occasions of this in Scripture. Jehu, for instance, is raised up by God. The prophet is going to come to him and basically anoint him king, even though there's another king at that time. And Jehu is going to rise up as king because God assigned him that, and he is going to bring judgment on the house of Ahab. It's a pretty potent scene that you're going to see. You're going to see Jezebel trampled under uh, the chariot wheels, right? This is like a huge thing. This is Jehu, assigned by God, brought up by God, and yet, and it's going to say he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Well, his finishing statement on his life is he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, that which is going to start with God's sponsorship still can go awry. And with Roosevelt, I am going to see him throughout World War II make decisions that are going to be godly. If I could just say it simply, they are going to be that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet I'm going to see a miscarriage of his life. At the very moment when that great man is needed to be strong, he is absent. And as a result, all of his life's work, in a strange sense, is lost. Because everything that you could have said he accomplished, which was to destroy Hitler, well, it's not that impressive when you think and you realize that he should have been there to stop Stalin. Because Stalin just stepped right into Hitler's shoes. That's what he did. He just stepped right into that role. The only way to get great men, the only way great men can carry such weights of global leadership is to cater to the flesh. It's a con. It's a lie. The secret to going the distance is not turning to the flesh. You see, there's a lot of different lies out there because most of us aren't in a position of world leadership. Most of us, of course. There's a handful of us in here that rule nations, right? But we still have the same bait. You have weights on your shoulders, and those are heavy weights. 
And so what does the world tell you to do? In fact, what do Christians tell you to do? Believe me, I've, I've been through this. I've been counseled for many years. When I was young in ministry, I had leaders that were old and gray that would tell me what I should do. You need to take some time for you. You need to just, just get a pile of movies and go and just veg. These are, that's not just the world. This is also Christian leadership telling a young budding leader what to do because the weights will crush you. I felt it. I mean, I could hardly stand at a certain moment in the very beginning of our ministry. I was so overwhelmed, so exhausted, so disillusioned by what I saw in the church. I, I was having a tough time standing up. It's like, look, look, Eric, you need to take time for you. What, what the problem is, you're not tending to you. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I need to tend to me. <laughs> Here's what I can say. Okay, I, after all these years, I've been doing this a long time now. After all these years, I'm gonna tell you bluntly that is the worst advice anyone could ever give. When I tended to me, or Leslie and I could say, we tended to us, okay, which sounds good, right? But what we both were saying is we're both tending to ourselves for a little. We, we did. We got a stack of movies, and we went up to this, uh, it was a lake house, and we vegged is the best way of saying it. I mean, I can hardly remember anything about that whole two-week time, but all we did was stare, and somehow that was replenishing. No, it actually weakened us. It weakened us. I can actually show you trajectories of our life in ministry and how I begin to resent ministry after this and all these different things that happen until I'm going to go through a reviving in my soul. And what that reviving is going to be is, Eric, you turned to the things of this world instead of to me. I am the only one that can supply you what you need to do the spiritual assignment you have. And so when you go to the world, it will deplete you. It will give you a satisfaction for the moment and then it will deplete you even more. You turn to me. So the secret to going the distance, I know it sounds rather pat, turning to Jesus. Okay, so just let's, let's test it here. You've been working really hard. You have been, you've gone through an extreme challenge, trauma, crisis, ministry, weights, whatever it is, and you have been taxed all right, now what do you feel like doing? If I asked you what you feel like doing, very likely it's not gonna be the answer that's on the screen. Turn to Jesus. <laughs> How about you have a prayer time? Oh, does that sound fun? Right about now, a prayer time? Oh, how about you have a getaway with Jesus where you don't bring anything with you but all you have is you and him? Oh, you, that doesn't sound replenishing. That sounds miserable. No offense, Jesus, but I need something other than you right now. That's a con. You see, the answer actually is found in turning to Jesus, and that's, but it's obscured because your flesh is not going to agree with that. But there's a supernatural dimension of you that I want to fan into flame today to begin to train us in how to not have an unfinished portrait in our life. There is something God is doing and it cannot be miscarried in the process. Second Chronicles 16, 12 through 13. Asa, a good king. You know, it's rare to find good kings, right? Asa, a good king, listen to this. 
Asa became diseased in his feet and his malady was severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. One of the best ways of saying it is, so Asa turned to the physicians and died. It's that simple. It's, and Roosevelt turned to Warm Springs, Georgia, and to Lucy Mercer, instead of to the Lord, and died. Okay, I'm just trying to be as blunt as I can in this, because I see something that in 1945, America couldn't see. They didn't understand what happened and why it happened so suddenly. And yet, in hindsight, we can see that there's an unfinished portrait. Everything about this story is profound. The fact that there was a portrait being painted of a great man, and yet that great man's portrait is going to be left unfinished. The con. The only way you can make it through this challenge is to turn to what the world turns to. The world has its options. It has its elixirs. It has its sustaining elements to it. And every single one of us is familiar with these things. And yet, what we need to understand is that this is a con on our life. I am not going to say that laughing, smiling, even watching film is in and of itself evil. Like there's evil, like turning to Lucy Mercer instead of uh, your wife is evil. That's, a, that's an immoral act which is detrimental to the marriage, detrimental to the man, detrimental to Lucy, detrimental to a country, detrimental to a world in this case. And yet there are other things that aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves, but they can be like a physician. A physician isn't evil, but when you turn to the physician instead of to the Lord, like I always say, turn to the Lord, and if he turns you to the physician, great, but make sure you turn to the Lord. Don't pull an Asa. Turn to the Lord. Let him tell you what to do next. Exodus 23, 24 through 26. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. So you have the declaration of how you enter into this land, the, the picture for how you are going to engage with the world. Canaan, you are of a different nature than this territory you're coming into. You have a different heritage. You are of Christ. They are of Adam. In this case, they are of Canaan, and you are of Abraham. You are a descendant of, you are one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You are other than them. You have been set apart for a very specific purpose, and when you go into this land, you will not take their idols as your own. You will not bow down to them. Listen to this. So you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take away sickness from the midst of you. No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Isn't that an amazing statement? This is, this is to a nation. There isn't going to be a miscarriage when you don't go to the physicians instead of the Lord. If you turn to God, he will sustain your bread and water. He will bring about the finished portrait. 
what he intended to do, he will do. What, what is miscarriage in, a, in the most simple sense is a loss of that which God was doing, what God was building. God sponsors life. We live in a world, and I'm not going to say that miscarriage you know, in the womb is always a result of sin or a Franklin Roosevelt type of decision. I'm going to say it is an unfinished portrait, though. And we live in a world that loves to snuff out the portrait that God is desiring to bring about. And so as a result, we cherish a statement like we see here in Exodus, which is God saying, I care about those things. You see, if you will set yourself apart from me and focus on me, instead of turning to what this world would offer, I want you to tear down that. I want you to allow me to build in you an understanding of how to have a single eye for the things of heaven. Unfinished portraits, a miscarried life. There are actually a lot of unfinished portraits that we could go into if that was the point right now. But what I want to talk to us about is the fact that I don't want us to be an unfinished portrait. I don't want God's purposes in this earth right now in the church. Like what's happened with COVID-19 is there's a stirring. There's an awakening within the church. Well, what do you think the devil wants to do? He wants to have a cerebral hemorrhage in the church. He wants us to get distracted with politics right now instead of Christ. There's huge bait for us to lose sight and to head off to warm springs. Because when you go through difficult seasons like we've all gone through this year this is just in Colorado for those of you that aren't in Colorado I know my audience live right now is I mean it is weird uh in Colorado right now uh and we have wildfires that have been unabated for months and yesterday was almost like extreme day I don't even know how to describe it but the sky was it was apocalyptic it was sort of like that amber sky dark at about 2 30 in the afternoon it looked like it was about six at night and you sort of felt like it was time to get ready for bed or something it was weird and we're it, it affects you in a, in a weird way it's hard to function normal and just act like it's not going on it's it's invading our lives wildfires it's not it's every sort of fire right now is burning in, in this world and it does feel like the world is on fire wouldn't that i mean in colorado it definitely is true but just in a general sense this is a very real thing that we're dealing with warm spring sounds very nice right now you want to escape the challenge if you were carrying the weight of the world and you were having to make decisions that affect world history could you understand why someone would want to get off to warm springs i mean lucy mercer is waiting doesn't it make sense to you yeah it makes sense to our natural man why we'd want to escape in this hour this is when we turn to Jesus. We turn to Jesus with an aggression of soul that declines the invite of the world and said, I know why I'm here and I know I need to be sharp right now. I am constantly having to negotiate these sorts of turns in my life. I mean, it is an ongoing thing and it's not just a one-time thing where it's like, I am not going to do this. Instead, I'm going to spend time with Jesus right now. It's like, well, I did it, I did it. Well, then all throughout that day, I need to keep doing it. I have been in a, a mode, because I'm not against knowing what's going on politically. I feel at a certain level, I really want to know so I know how to pray. But right now, I know Eric Ludi, And I know that I need to focus spiritually. 
And so therefore, I've been declining all uh, news. I know there was a debate last night, and I know nothing about the debate. Isn't that an amazing statement? And that's Eric Ludi. And I know nothing about the debate, and I'm extremely intrigued about the debate, but guess what? I did a search. I was doing something on Hitler, and it came up that Biden said something about Hitler last night in the debate. It pops up. It's like, oh, come on. Uh, so I, I've been doing my best to, uh, to stay focused, so I do know that little bit. Biden mentioned Hitler. And for me, that's one of the reasons why I'm strong and I'm sound in judgment, in thought, in reason, in life, in clarity. I want to follow the cloud when it moves. And I feel like there are so many things that can distract me so the cloud moves and I miss it. Because I am, I, I'm listening to a different noise I'm following something other when it's moving, and I'm so fascinated by that movement, that it's sort of like the dog that goes, squirrel, you know, and it looks off and sees the shiny object and instead misses what it's truly supposed to be hunting. We're not hunting squirrel. We're hunting, uh, what else is something? Deer, I don't know what, what we're hunting, but we're hunting something bigger, something much grander. Let's keep our eye on the prize. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. One of the things you're gonna see in that statement, even though it's a little cloaked, is that you pass away when you seek the things of the world. When you seek the things of heaven, you abide, you remain. And so that, that's the interesting statement that sort of is the essence of this message. There are two allures. The allure of the world is very strong when you're in a time of weakness, when you're in a time of depletion. Roosevelt, without, you know, if I was gonna write a novel about this, you know, I've had my thoughts of how it could play out. You know, you have the Lucy Mercer voice to him. And she probably calls him Frankie, right? Frankie, come on, get away. Come meet me in Warm Springs. And then you have the voice of a pastor in his life that says, uh, Franklin, I'm not, I know you're carrying a lot of weights right now, and I think you need to be extra guarded. I think you need to be extra watchful right now. This is a critical time in history. Please, I don't know what you're going through. If you want to entrust me with any of it I, so I can pray for you, I just want to know how I can stand. But I want you to be very guarded right now. And, of course, we see the trajectory of where he's going to go. This is very possibly a godly man, okay, possibly, that is going to make a choice, as David did uh, in the Old Testament, by staying home from the battle and failing with Bathsheba. We're going to see a judgment, in a sense, on his life that years later we're able to witness, and we're also able to witness the impact it's going to have on the world. We all have a role, and it may not be as big as Franklin Roosevelt's, but we all have a role. One man can harm a nation, think Aiken. One man can actually help a nation when he stays true. Okay, obviously the best illustration of that is a man named Jesus Christ. 
who is not going to be wooed by the world, who is not going to listen to the pleas of Lucy Mercer, but is going to maintain a purity. And he is going to be a finished portrait. What we have is a clear picture of the Father when we see Jesus Christ. It's not unfinished. What does he say? It is finished. We have a finished portrait. A man who is going to set a pattern that even though he is broken down, even though he is bruised, even though he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, he is going to turn to his father in prayer in Gethsemane instead of turn to Lucy Mercer. We have a pattern. The other pattern is a con. It is something that takes down strong men. The Proverbs warns us about it. However, as Christians, we need to recognize that we have been given a pattern in Jesus Christ. In the time of weakness, in the time of depletion, we turn unto him, and he supplies something known as grace. He gives us something that we cannot ever get from turning to this world's elixir. James 4.4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. A finished portrait, Jesus Christ. I think that's just an amazing thought to think that he is going to go the entire distance. He is going to finish the race. He is going to finish the work. He is the portrait. Roosevelt's an unfinished portrait. Asa, an unfinished portrait. Jehu, an unfinished portrait. Jesus, a finished portrait. One of my desires before I entered into ministry, I told God, I said, I do not want to enter into ministry right now if I know in the future I am going to fall and falter and blemish your name. I, just, I don't even want to do it now. I'll stop now. I don't even want to go in that direction. My greatest fear in all the, my life, because I grew up in the Jim Baker, Jimmy Baker days and the uh, Swaggart, is that, is that his name? Uh, what, what, what was his first name? Jimmy Swaggart. So it was Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swaggart. Uh, and I was so, uh, the revulsion inside of me over that and how it diminished the name of Jesus in our generation was so thick inside of me. It's like, God, I don't even want to go in that direction if it leads to failure. I want to know that a man can finish the race. I, and for our language today, I want to know that a man can be a finished portrait. That when someone looks at my life after I'm gone and they say he finished the work that he set out to do. He finished the race. That's what Paul is going to say about his life. And so as a result, I want to be that. God, how do you do that? I didn't know at the time. I honestly didn't know what the tools were. I just knew he could do it. I believed him. I believed that he intended men and women to not just start and then miscarry, but to start and then complete. Even if along the way there's fumbles and bumbles and trips, he'll get them back up and they will cross the finish line. That's what I care about. And I am a strong believer, stronger now than I've ever been in my life, that that's exactly what God does. God enables us to finish the race. Psalm 1611 this is speaking about Christ, and yet it's also an amazing picture of what we have in Christ. 
You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You, you're depleted. You're weak. I remember when this scripture began to press upon my life. This is quite a few years ago. I want to say 12 to 15, somewhere in there. Yeah, closer to 15. I remember being asked sort of the question, Eric, do you believe this? Do you believe that in his presence is fullness of joy? Because I know in the presence of a movie, there's a certain delight. I mean, that, that, that's, that's some, some joy, right? But do I believe that in his presence is the fullness of joy? And do I believe that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore? Eric, which way are you turning? I know the world has its enticements. Vanity Fair has its, its delights. But I have something so much greater. Do you trust me? Will you go after what I have? Because I'm telling you, in my presence is the fullness of joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm a believer, guys. I believe that to turn to Jesus in that time of depletion is actually the secret. Not to turn away and get a reprieve from Jesus in the presence of God, but to actually turn unto him and you will find everything you need to be strong for the battle and to live a life that could be described as a finished portrait. Father, I ask very specifically that you would grant us the grace to run this race well and that you would correct us in whatever way is necessary today, that you would recalibrate us around the fact that turning to the physicians as Asa did instead of to the Lord is not the way we want to go. Lord, we want to turn towards you, and I pray that you would refresh that commitment today, that we would remember you and not just give a head nod in your direction, say, oh yes, I believe God, but hey, I'm turning to the physicians. Yes, I believe God, but I'm turning to the movies. Yes, I believe God, but I'm turning to this cultural satisfaction. Lord, we trust you. You have shown us the pattern. You have given us the grace. You have given us the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. And Lord, may we as the church of Jesus Christ do it and do it now. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.